pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we do turn to you now. We come this morning because we trust that you are able and willing to send your spirit to be the great teacher of our hearts, that we might know you better. If it were not for his work in our hearts and minds, we know that we would be hopelessly lost. And so we come this morning in faith that you will do what you promise, that you will send him to be our great teacher. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture text this morning is actually two texts. One is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, and you'll find that on page 660 of the Pew Bible. You can keep one finger there and also turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and you'll find that on page 939 of the Pew Bible. While you're turning there, I want to introduce a short sermon series that we're going to begin over the next few weeks. It's a series on the renewed mind. It's something that Paul speaks of on a number of occasions and specifically uses that phrase, the renewed mind, in Romans chapter 12, where he speaks about the mercies of God, summarizing them and what the renewed mind is to do in response to God's mercies. In other words, when we become Christians, God gives us a new mind, a renewed mind, so that we can think clearly about Him and respond to Him rightly. As we look upon Him and we bask in His glory and His majesty and the wonder of His grace, we long to know Him better. Now, since we're talking about the renewed mind, I thought I would give you a trivia question this morning. You all know that Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? And most of us know that he said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God. And good Bible students know that Jesus wasn't coming up with something altogether new, but was quoting or reiterating what Moses spoke in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what the Hebrews call the Shema. And there Moses said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But the trivia question is this. What's the difference between Jesus' version and Moses' version? Well, if you were to look in Mark chapter 12, you see the answer. When Jesus has asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? His response is, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And with all your strength. In other words, loving God is as much a mental activity as it is anything else. I'm sure that that would have struck the Jews of Jesus' day. They, every Hebrew would have memorized the Shema. And there was something different about Jesus' version, something that he wants to point out to them so that they understand that loving God actually begins with our minds. Because we must know about God before we can actually know who He is. Now that's contrary to the way most people in our culture think about love. Whether it's romantic love. Certainly that begins with the emotions, doesn't it? You fall in love. You're overwhelmed with some emotion for somebody. Or even in uh, uh, contemporary evangelistic efforts. 
what is often attempted is to try to get people to, to feel differently. If we can get all the, the settings right, then there'll be an emotional experience that people will have and they will want to come to God in faith. But Jesus says just the opposite about love. That begins in the mind. Going back to the idea of evangelism, it begins with the mind. Count the cost, Jesus says, of following me. It's a mental activity to come to God. That's what Paul meant in Romans chapter 12 when he says, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. This is your, now most translations are uh, spiritual act of worship, but the actual translation, as we'll look at later on in this series, it's your logical response to God. In other words, as you consider with your mind the mercies of God towards you, then the most logical thing that you can do is respond to Him in faith and love and obedience. And today we're going to talk about how only the renewed mind can actually know God in faith. And so I'm going to read here from Jeremiah chapter 31 and also from Romans 1. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And I will no longer and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then turning to Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You all remember the story of the parable of the prodigal son, and how the younger son rejected his father considered him as good as dead and asked for his early inheritance so that he could go off and squander it in his own wild living. And when he came to his senses, he came back to his father. And you remember his father very graciously welcomed him and, and threw a party for him. But remember the response of the elder son. 
He was angry at his father. You've never even given me a, a goat that I can go and celebrate with my friends. And so he rebelled against his father. Now both sons, you might say, did the same thing. They both left the father. One left his presence, despising him and wanting to go off and live life on his own terms. You might say he left geographically. Now the other son left relationally. He stayed in the presence of the father, but he wanted nothing to do with the father. He considered the father to be an, uh, a harsh man, one who never gives anything good, and he despised him for it. And so he left the father relationally, you might say. But both of them made the same mistake. They left the father because of wrong thinking about who the father was. Neither one of them really knew him. And because they did not know him, how good he was, how gracious, how kind he was, they both withdrew. Now everyone who is a sinner, and that includes every one of us, as well as everyone who has ever lived except for Jesus, knows what it's like at times to leave God, to withdraw from him, to hide from him, maybe out of a sense of guilt and shame, Maybe because we feel as though his way of life is not the kind of life that I want to live. Maybe we don't trust that when he says, come to me, that that means a good life. That there's something better out there for me. Here both sons have withdrawn because they've missed out on the greatest blessing of life. And that is knowing the Father. As one writer put it, knowing God is what we were created for. It will occupy us throughout all of eternity. It is the main thing about life. And yet sin is what separates us from God. The prophet Isaiah said this in chapter 59 when he was speaking to the people of Judah, warning them of the destruction that's about to come. Your sin has made a separation between you and and your God. And what Jeremiah does here in chapter 31 is give a, a similar warning to the people that if they don't repent and return to God, he is going to sweep them away into exile because of his judgment. It's the threat of destruction and removal into exile by a foreign power. And yet what God reveals here in this particular passage in Jeremiah is that he gives a new hope for the people of God that looks beyond the exile to make a new covenant with his people. He finds fault for them, that they have rebelled against him. And he also recognizes that the old covenant could not do what was necessary, which is actually to give the internal realities of faith and love for God. And so he's going to make a new covenant Send the Spirit into our hearts to give us new minds so that we would be faithful to Him. And what we see through this promise of the new covenant are two opposing truths about knowing God. The first is this. Sinful minds are hostile to God. Sinful minds are hostile toward God. Jeremiah here speaks of the faithlessness of the Israelites. He speaks of the covenant that they broke with Him. 
He says that I was a husband to them. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt on eagles' wings. He cared for them. He protected them. He provided all that they needed. And yet, their faithlessness is what is most evident. And you might say on one level, that is exactly what is to be expected. Because the the natural mind or the natural person, the person who comes in sin to God, can do nothing else but reject him. It is the way in which a spiritually dead person responds to God. And that is hostility. Now God created us with the capacity to know him. To know him as he reveals himself to us. Think of Psalm 19. Psalm 19 speaks of two different ways that God has revealed himself to us. One is through the book, you might say, of creation. He has declared himself in the heavens. And when we look at the heavens, we can't help but know that there is a God. And not only that, but we see that there is a God because we are made in his image. And we have this sense from the inside out that there is a God and that I was made to know him, that I was made to find joy and satisfaction in something that's transcendent, that's beyond this world. But Psalm 19 also looks upon the other book, and that is the book of Scripture. And recognizes that we were made to hear those words, Thus says the Lord, and respond to His word as a son or a daughter responds to a good father in this life. And so God has made us with the capacity to know Him. And yet no matter how much God reveals Himself, in creation or in scripture, unless there is an internal change in our hearts, we will never come to him in faith, but rather we'll want nothing to do with God. That's the very thing that he says here in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He talks about those who suppress the truth. The unrenewed mind wants to suppress the truth about God and say, It's not true. It's all a lie. In fact, what he goes on to say is that they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they worship something in the creation rather than worshiping God. Paul tells us that everyone, even the atheist, knows that there is a God. They can sense that there's a God of power, of creativity, A God that is infinite just by looking at the world in which we live. The evidence is overwhelming and yet they suppress the truth with darkened minds and become antagonistic towards him. And what he says is, if that's the case, then I'll give you up to your own desires. I'll give you up so that your will will be done So that you'll follow after all your own desires and devices. And you won't know me. The sinful mind is hostile towards God. And Jeremiah knows that. And he wants to guard Israel from falling into this trap. And Earlier in the book of Jeremiah, he speaks about removing every barrier that would come between them and knowing God. He says in chapter 9, verse 23. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom 
Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. You see, the sinful mind was, is willing to boast in anything but knowing God. Wisdom, might, power, riches, fame, success. What do you find yourself boasting in? Do you find yourself boasting mostly that you know God? Or in something else besides him. Because what the Bible tells us is that the only life worth boasting about is the one in which knowing God is at the center of it all. Sort of like when you hear someone talk about a well-known person, a well-respected, a well-liked person, and you can say, yeah, I know him. I know him. That's the feeling we ought to have when we, we think about our own lives. Is that The thing that is most important to us is actually knowing God. Yes, I know Him. And that's what we really boast in. Not all the other things that find their way into our lives. And yet, the Bible is here to say that the sinful mind would have nothing to do with claiming God. Now still... We have remaining sin in our hearts and minds. And so we need to ask the question, even as Christians, what, what effect does sin still have on the life of the believer in regards to knowing God? Well, we do just like the non-Christian. We erect barriers between us and God. Just like the non-Christian might boast in all the other things that they might have apart from God as a, as a barrier between them and God, we can do the same things. Let me mention two ways. One is, as I said to the children, we're content sometimes to know about God without actually knowing Him. Now, many people are great students of theology, and that's exact, actually a wonderful thing. We ought to study the Scriptures and pursue understanding them well. But actually, in some cases, theology can become a barrier to knowing God when we're content to know about him rather than actually know him. I can remember the first semester of seminary in an introductory theology class and Dr. Williams asked the question of the whole class, what's the purpose of theology? And we all stood there with blank faces on our uh, uh, blank looks on our faces, not knowing exactly what to say. And the answer is to know God and to live for Him. We must ask ourselves, what do we plan to do with all the knowledge that we have about God? Well, we ought to learn to love Him. We ought to learn to know Him. Otherwise, our, our knowledge of God actually works through our souls like a cancer beginning to eat us away from the inside out. Because as Paul says, knowledge puffs up, doesn't it? It makes us proud. It makes us conceited. We begin to think well of ourselves. We look upon other Christians who maybe don't know as much as we know about the Bible. They don't know all the various themes and the connections that are being made. And 
we think so well of ourselves that we feel superior. And in reality, knowing God ought to do just the opposite. It ought to bow us down before Him in worship. So that the person who has the most profound theology is actually the person who is the most childlike in faith. I don't mean immature. I don't mean lacking in biblical content. But I mean dependent, humble. Consider Jesus the greatest theologian to walk the face of the earth. And he was like a little boy with his heavenly father praying again and again, Father, Father, answer my prayers. Fulfill your promises. That's the kind of thing that ought to happen in our lives when we know more about him and begin to know him, that our our faith becomes like that, humble, dependent upon God himself. But there's another great barrier that sin erects in our lives, and it's this, that we're actually content to know the will of God without knowing God. People often say, I want practical instruction in life. I need some help with being a parent. I need to know what decisions to make in life. What should I do with my money? How should I spend my time? We, we want practical answers, and the Bible is filled with wisdom. And certainly Christianity is practical to the core. But there are times in which we actually want answers to those questions, not so that we can know God better, but so that we can live a successful, well-adjusted life. So that things begin to go well for us. So that we can begin to live a self-sufficient life. Apart from depending upon His grace. To be at work in us. And both of these things, knowing about God without knowing Him, and knowing His will but not actually knowing Him, are really both a form of self deception about our own spiritual condition. For we begin to think well of ourselves. I know a lot of theology, I know the right choices to make, I must be a mature Christian. And in reality, just the opposite may be the case. Those things become our salvation rather than actually knowing the Savior, the God of grace, who is our salvation. And so we need to be mindful of the fact that the sinful mind is hostile towards God because these things actually reveal a heart that's afraid of knowing God, fearful. Because if I actually know him, what, what will that mean for me? What is he going to change about my life? What will he begin to find about me when he begins to look under every rock in my heart and see all the things there that I don't want anyone else to see? Sort of like the person who's actually afraid to get married. They're, they're content to date as long as they keep that person at arm's length. But afraid to get married... Because what will it require of me? What will they learn about me? And the sinful mind is actually afraid to know God and tries to keep God at arm's length. But here's the good news of the new covenant. The good news is this, is that God has enabled us 
to know him. Even though we've been made with the capacity to know him and as we've seen, sin separates us from him. Out of God's grace, he remedies the problem. He sends his spirit into our hearts and gives us new hearts. He gives us new minds so that we can look on the truth about God and delight in him and love him. It's the thing that Jeremiah speaks of here. Jeremiah says again and again what God will do. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God is going to do it. God is going to enable us to know him in faith because that's the result in verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is the promise that's realized through the ministry of Christ. Paul says we have the mind of Christ. He says that he prays for the Colossian church that they would know the Lord, that they would grow in knowledge of God. And he says later on that it's God's work in them to make them, remake them into the image of their creator in knowledge. That is to say, in knowing him. God is going to enable his people to know him by giving us new minds. Because right thinking about God is at the heart of the Christian life. Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest American theologian at least, speaks of knowing God this way. And he says that what we're doing in knowing God is first of all, informing our minds about God, about his character, about his being, about his works on our behalf. So that then, as our consciences are worked on, so that we look at ourselves and we say, there is something flawed about me. And there's something flawed about my response to a God who is so great, God who is so holy, a God who is so loving and merciful. That it begins to direct our wills so that we want to honor him with our lives. And in the end... He says it raises our affections for God so that we want to love him and we want to give our lives to him. Now, what does that look like? Two things real quick. First, it means contentment with God, that we're content with him, with him rather than anything else. He says, the psalmist says in Psalm 107, he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. In other words, I can say, I have all that I need if I have God. If I have him, I need nothing else. Because he's the great delight and treasure of my heart. Asaph in Psalm 73 says, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And everything that I have and every experience that I go through in life is received in light of knowing God. Every blessing I receive, every difficult time of suffering that I go through, every material possession, every gift that I have, those things are now received in light of the greatest treasure which is knowing Him. 
Because you see, when you know God, then, then He enables you to put a value, a price tag on everything in comparison to knowing Him. So that the greatest thing is actually worshiping Him rather than boasting of all those other things that we might have that Jeremiah speaks of. And since we've been given this great privilege and ability to know God, we want to do what Paul has commanded the church. The very call to worship that we had today. Seek the things that are above. Those are the treasures that we really want. Because they have lasting value. And so the person who knows God is content with God. But secondly, the person who knows God has a commitment to God. Think about the people who knew God best in the Bible. Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Jesus. They were the ones who contemplated most about who God is. And they were the ones who were most committed to God. Committed to serving Him. Committed to loving Him. They couldn't help but love Him above everything else. Because you see, growing in knowledge of God, as we've said, is not, it's not just a formal transfer of information from the Bible to my brain. But it's rather a work of God's grace where I begin to know Him. In fact, the word for know and for knowledge in the Bible is used of the most intimate relationship between a man and a woman. And that's the kind of relationship that God is describing between him and his people. Intimate, personal, filled with joy. Because we actually know this great God. It's what John Stott says when he says, knowledge of God is a warm devotion set on fire by truth. Where the knowledge of him begins to stir our souls so that we devote our lives to him. We want to give everything over to Him. And that's the very thing that, going back to Psalm 19, as the psalmist reflects upon creation and reflects upon the Word of God, look at where he ends. Verse 14. He ends with a desire for complete devotion to God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let everything about my life, everything that I think about, everything that I say, everything that I do be acceptable in your sight because I want to devote my life to you because you are the greatest treasure to me. Because you see, when you know somebody, it changes you, doesn't it? When you begin to know somebody and you become close to them, you begin to speak a little bit like them. You begin to act a little bit like them. They start rubbing off on you. In fact, you, you want to do things just because it pleases the other person. Whether it's a best friend or a spouse or a cousin. Whoever it is, when, you, when you're around them and you become close with them, you end up being like them. And the more we know God, we look at Him and we say, now that's who I want to be like. I want to be just like And we're starting a new year. We're not at the very beginning, but we're close enough. 
And the whole point of this little sermon series on the renewed mind is so that we can know God better. And that as we think about this upcoming year, that our hearts and minds would be devoted to that task above everything else. Make it your commitment this year. That as you think about your goals for this year, what you want to accomplish, what your life would be like at the end of this year, that you would know God better. And as you do, hear this promise from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What a great promise God gives to us. If we seek to know him, we will find him and we will know him. The greatest blessing we could ever have. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We pray that our vision of life would be that which Jesus prayed for us in the Garden of Gethsemane in his high priestly prayer. That eternal life is knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Father, we pray today that that would be the great goal of our lives this year. As we look forward to the months ahead, that above all, we would seek your face and know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.